This is On the Edge, a podcast series from the Creative Coalition, featuring conversations with an edge and chats with personalities from the world of entertainment. Now, here's your host, Creative Coalition CEO, Robin Bronk. Hello, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's episode of On the Edge. Today, I am delighted to be joined by one of the stars of NBC's hit show, New Amsterdam. Actor and comedian Tyler Labine plays Dr. Iggy Fromm on that hit show. Tyler, you are in the hot seat. We've been focusing on this issue of obesity, of destigmatizing it, and you are changing hearts and minds. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So I don't know if you remember meeting me, but I met you in the New Amsterdam gang when you were filming the episode about a patient who had obesity. Mm -hmm. I do remember meeting you. Yeah. Well, let's talk about New Amsterdam a little bit. For those very few who haven't seen it yet, what's the premise of your show? What's the log line? Uh, Well, I mean, the elevator pitch would be it's, you know, America's oldest public hospital. And it's about a group of maverick doctors who are kind of out there trying to get the best care for their patients and deal with all the red tape and bureaucracy of the American medical system, you know, healthcare system. I mean, Aaron always says this to the oldest public hospital. What does that mean? I mean, Bellevue is the oldest public hospital in America. And that's in New York? Yeah. And I think it was 17, late 1780s, I think is when it's from. And uh, yeah, it's still there. They built like a big hospital around Bellevue, but you can still, you go in the atrium and the original old hospital in the atrium. It's like a city. It has its own like courthouses and like branch of government. That's not true, but uh, (laughs) it's huge. And it's, um, yeah, it's public. It's public. And a lot of people think that it's like Arkham Asylum. It's got this reputation as being like the madhouse. Honestly, that's what I thought it was. Most people think that's what it is. And so when I went there and heard that, I met with Dr. Jennifer Havens, who runs the, she's more of the children's psychiatric department there, but it's huge. And the psych ward there is like, has like 500 beds. It's massive. They have schools in there. It's a crazy, crazy facility that people don't realize. Like they have a, they have a prison in there. It's not in the psych ward, in the hospital, but it's like its own little city. It's like its own standalone city. I guess we worked with you all on the story arc, this obesity story arc. It was, Mm. I guess now it's Mm. been two years. It was originally at the end of season two and it got, there's a whole story there. We can get into it if you want, but. Yeah, um, I definitely want to get into it. Tell uh, me about Dr. Iggy Fromm, who is your character. And it was sort of started as this kind of quirky story arc, but it kind Mm -hmm. of triggered you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Iggy. And he's a psychiatrist, right? Well, that's a funny thing too. Like when we started the show, he was a child psychiatrist, you know, and when I say child, I mean, you know, 18 and under, and we quickly ran into a few issues with the medical community saying like, well, what is he a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Because he was, you know, he was behaving much more sort of like a psychologist, you know, really kind of, you know, art therapy, talk therapy, holistic approach to therapy. And, you know, the psychiatric and psychologist community were a little like, hey, man, we've taken a lot of care and time to differentiate the two. You know, you can't just conflate the two on TV and be like, I'm an everythingist. So David Schulner, our showrunner, was like, well, we obviously we don't want to limit your story pool. So we're going to make you chair of behavioral studies. And that became the official title of Iggy. So he kind of is an everythingist. So I guess the gist of Iggy 
is that he's a very, very incredibly passionate psychologist and psychiatrist, mostly for children. And kind of, he fits into that group of mavericks because he'll kind of color outside the lines often and often at his own peril. He's also an incredibly flawed human being, which I love playing. And I guess that would be a good segue into where the disordered eating and eating disorder and body dysmorphia storyline came from. Yeah. I mean, I know from what we heard was we had pitched and brought you know this storyline in about obesity. And interestingly enough, it hadn't been covered. Obesity hadn't been covered, I don't think, in New Amsterdam, really. No, no, not but at all. When you saw the script or, you know, how did it? The storyline for the woman who wanted the skin removal, you mean? Yeah, that, that, so there had already been. Will you give us a little snapshot of that storyline? Yeah, sure. So there was a woman who had had lost a lot of weight and I believe it had gastric bypass surgery, but nobody had told her, you know, or had informed her sufficiently that she was going to have a lot of excess skin, which is what happens for a lot of people. And not only was it uncomfortable and embarrassing for her, she was getting lesions and sores all over her body, which is also true. And that happens to a lot of patients and they're not covered medically, or they don't have the insurance coverage to get the skin removal surgery. So, you know, a lot of people have to live with this incredibly uncomfortable and potentially life-threatening byproduct of losing all this weight, which is what they've been told to do. You know, this is how you get to be happy. And then you're saddled with this whole new problem that medical and healthcare providers don't, they don't consider coverable, you know? And you like that as a storyline, you were able to, which often happens on New Amsterdam, you think outside the box. We we had to diagnose her with some melanoma, some skin cancer so that she could have the skin areas removed. And it was like, it wasn't quite lying. It was maverick doctoring, like we said, but it was a, there were some, some sketchy looking moles and things. And so Freema, who plays Dr. Sharp, and I came up with a plan that if we could convince her HMO that she needed to have skin removal because of cancer, it would be covered, but not for the reason she was actually in there for. So when you saw this episode, was it meaningful to you to touch a chord? Yeah. You know, any storyline, any representation about weight loss or obesity that I've seen before And anything we had touched on, which I'll I'll go back and talk about the original trigger for my kind of storyline, it always hits me in a very uncomfortable spot. I'd never really seen any like care taken, you know, to tell this story or to tell overall stories about sort of physical transformations and not only the physical sort of pain, but the mental toll that it takes on people. And and that storyline was really interesting too, because this woman was like, she was being torn apart emotionally after doing something that she thought was going to be the cure, you know? And I think that that sort of triggered something for me, this idea that we can't be happy functioning members of society if we're obese is bullshit and it's misinformation. And I understand that there are health issues, but the whole BMI scale, everything that has been sort of, I think, sort of given to us, handed to us as these very sort of catch-all reasons that being overweight is bad and it's bad for your health isn't actually that true. Yes, there are health and safety risks, you know, if you get to a certain level of obesity. But anyway, it just always triggers me because I feel like no one ever really talks about that. No one talks about that. Like, what if you are a happy, healthy, overweight person, but you still get the same stigma? There's still the same stigma. So it triggered me in that regard where she was talking about being stared at more 
now that she had lost the weight, but it was very subtle. They wrote in there that earlier she had become accustomed to the way, to the, the certain type of stairs. And that really hit me. She's like, yeah, because people do. People feel like it's still okay to judge and look and like publicly sort of heckle overweight people. And it's the only, it's like the only acceptable, I, I, I say acceptable very loosely, but it's like the only acceptable thing I think that people still feel okay to openly judge and throw very offensive words around and hurtful words around without thinking about it. It's the last of the stigmatized diseases. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, you know, like we could never, it was interesting. I was watching some pretty contemporary shows the other night from probably five, seven years ago and they don't hold up. No, I know. Isn't it? It's so not even a cancel culture thing. It's just a cringe Mm -hmm. thing that, yeah. And and it's good because we as human beings should be evolving and should be working better, but obesity there's the health factor too. There's no other disease. We actually just did a PSA. I'll, I'll send it to you if you haven't seen it with talking about if someone had epilepsy, mm-hmm. you wouldn't say, oh, you know, just smile more. It'll uh, be better. Yeah. Or if someone broke their arm, you wouldn't say, don't go to the doctor. You're fine. Yeah. Or you wouldn't say, well, you shouldn't be engaging in physical activity. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's your fault. Right. And just to take that one step further, that's how I feel about mental health as well. Like, when did it become like separate from health, mental health and health? I don't know where the separation, like you wouldn't judge someone or think that they were weak if they had a degenerative heart disease right? or they, or they have type two diabetes. Yeah. With obesity, you look at it and, you know, the way we as humans seem to process it is the person sloppy, yeah. making bad decisions. And we know that you know, we don't make that judgment on any other, even yeah. you know, if you look at alcoholism or mental illness or like, you, yeah. you know, which by the way, I have both. <laughs> <laughs> you, are, you are a Renaissance man. <laughs> but uh, my friend of mine, Will Sasso had a really interesting interview. We've both been on Ethan Suplee's podcast, American Glutton. Yeah. He's gone through a huge physical transformation and had loose extra skin and all that. And Will Sasso said on there at one point, he's like, very sarcastically, he's like, oh, yeah, because everybody who's overweight wants that. It's like there's some belief that like, yeah, you chose it. You're like, yeah, you pig. You want to be fat. You are sad. You've chosen to do this thing. So, you know, you made your bed lie in it. And it's like, yeah, do you a- say that about any other? No, that's Not, what I'm know. saying. You don't look at someone and say you chose to have that disease. Yeah. You know, but it still isn't regarded as being in the same category. For some reason, it's a disease, you know? Growing up, what was it like? Well, okay. So let me walk it back a sec. So the original sort of the beginning of the pulling at the corner of the sticker for me on this show was that they had written in this very sort of back burner, quirky eating storyline with Iggy, where he would be like eating all these, like walk around with a bag of carrots in the pilot, a bag of like crudite and eating that. And then, you know, the next episode, he'd be in the break room shoveling gummy worms in his mouth kind of by himself, you know, and it was sort of like funny, like, oh, he's really just stress eating. And then it started to become more and more obvious that that was like a thing. They would show Iggy, like after having like a really, you know, stressful day, he'd be like shoveling chocolate in his mouth or whatever. And I just kind of like, remember I said to, to David Foster, he was on set one day. I had kind David of, is, just so everyone knows. He's a writer, executive producer, and is actually a doctor as well. 
he noticed my sort of agitation, I guess you could say. And my knee jerk reaction, to a lot of that stuff was like, fuck off. Don't give him a quirky disordered eating storyline and then not give it any attention. I have disordered eating and I have body dysmorphia and I have struggled since I was very young, since I was about 10 years old, eight, nine, 10 years old is when I began. I mean, it's a huge, it's a long talk, but eating for me is not something that I'm like, I'm willing to just kind of like poke at, you know? And I wasn't angry at it because most people don't even realize that that's a thing. So I said something and I just said like, well, if you're going to do this, can we do it? Like, has anybody ever, is there room here to add that Iggy might have disordered eating as like a real storyline? And Foster was like, well, yeah, I think probably, you know, and he, he, there was a reason why he asked me. And then Sean Cassidy, one of our writers and producers as well, called me and was like, hey, man, would you tell me your story? Like, I don't, I don't know your story with, you know, what you've struggled with, with your body and with eating. And I told him, and it was a long conversation and, you know, he took it all down. And then they asked me point blank, if they could use my story for a a storyline for Iggy. And I was like, yeah. And it involved a lot of shit. It was like my dad really body shaming me as a kid and kids body shaming me. And my dad putting me on crash diets and taking like shirtless photos of me and like making, you know, all kinds of things. And then it all sort of, um, culminated in me trying to commit suicide when I was like 12, 13. So you were getting this shame and blame stuff. Yeah. And my dad was like, also, you know, he got bad information too. His mom was, my grandma was a nightmare of a human being and his father was a nightmare. So I don't really blame my dad. I did. I don't anymore. The show has been very cathartic for me, but anyway, so I talked to them about it and then I gave them permission to use it. And then lo and behold, the script came down the pike and I, <laughs> I was on set and I read it and it's really weird, man. You don't realize how fucked up your story is until you see it from a different perspective. There it was written on the page coming out of Iggy's mouth. And I was like, oh, it sounds so bad. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was like embarrassed. And I kind of, I got like really shaky and I got really emotional and I threw the script down and I went immediately to write an email to David Schulner. But instead, first I talked to Janet Montgomery who is one of my closest friends on the cast who plays Dr. Bloom. And I just was like, well, I'm terrified, man. <laughs> she was like, then you have to do it. You have to do wow. this. Like, you gave them this story for a reason. And like, this show is super popular. And like, if you tell this story, think about all the good that could come from this and it might be really good for you and you have to do it. And I was like, you're right. You're right. So we did it and we shot it and it was really crazy and hard. And I literally was like talking to my dad for a lot of those takes and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we shot it. It was really insane. My mom was actually visiting. She was in town while we were shooting. Wow, really? And she like read the script that I accidentally left out on the table. You know, we could probably talk to Freud about that one. But it was a huge opportunity for my mom and I to have a big breakthrough conversation. I ended up having a big breakthrough conversation with my dad about all kinds of things who I was kind of estranged with for quite a while. And then the reaction from fans like after it came out was incredible. Men. Oh man, the men. What was it like? Tell me about some of the fans, because this is this untold story that you guys broke. I mean, so I knew shooting it that I was like, I've never seen this. I've never seen this candidly spoken about, you know, about a, a man. Also a man who looks like me, a man who also, by the way, has spent most of my career playing like the funny fat guy, for lack of a better term, is what I got called the schlub, you know, all that stuff. It was my bread and butter. And you bury a lot of shit when, when it's your paycheck, you know? So I had never seen this. 
And some of the first responses I got was when David and I went to Atlanta to do this, like we were talking about the show at SCAD for this like TV festival they have there. And David and I went and did like a panel about this really. And there was like, just like college kids, men, my age, older men getting up, approaching us, crying, telling me they like, Oh my God, I've never seen anybody talk. like, you know, guys who you would, ne- that's the thing. The, the problem is that you hear this phrase a lot. I never would have guessed like guys that you never would guess. It's like, yeah, you never guess. Cause it's like, that's not even a guess that is an option. You know, we don't talk about it. So it's just these guys. But then when I really knew it was really impactful was when like friends of mine, family members and friends of mine who were like, you know, seemingly unaffected their entire lives about things just started like confessing to me about how much pain they carried around and how amazing it was to see that representation, not just because it was me, because that's one thing, but for them to see it, period. And then the conversations we had afterwards and the conversations I've been having ever since, like even this one, you know, this is like two years ago. And it's still something that I think people, I don't know if anybody else has even covered it. I think we might be the only one right now. And it's just the impact. I didn't know. I didn't know how impactful it was going to be. It just felt very personal and and challenging. And I was like doing something brave for me. But I realized later, I was like, oh man, this is like, this is one of those moments. This is when pop culture can actually have like an effect on, hopefully an effect on the future, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. This is all fertile ground for change. Yeah. And I'm the first person to say, yes, the great part about you know, show business and the entertainment industry is that you have a superpower mm-hmm. every week. You're speaking to millions and influencing millions and millions of people. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's so exciting what you're doing. And so now you have this whole storyline around mm-hmm. your character. Where do you see the future of Dr. Iggy? Yeah. Driggy, as I like to call him. I'd like to say one more thing about the show without being too, you know, aggrandizing, but like, I think the thing that's cool about the show is that it does that all over the place. I'm not the only example of that. There's like inclusivity. I've never, like I've never seen before. So I love the show for that. But I think the future of Dr. Iggy is like really up in the air right now. He's kind of like, we've pushed the envelope so far with how flawed he is that I think some people are like, can he really, is he certified? Like, can he be a therapist? He might just need more therapy than, but I would never go see a therapist that didn't need therapy. That's my opinion. So I think they've put him through the ringer with a few things, like trying to adopt a kid without telling his husband. He's now like hired this new assistant, this hot Australian guy that he's kind of like flirting with, but it's like, what are you doing, buddy? They had him try to stop seeing patients and, you know, he's been forced back into that. And like, so there's a lot of them pushing, I guess, the sort of the tenacity of this character, like how much can he come back from? What I would like to see is like, I really want, really want to see Iggy find, like, like hit his stride at this point. I'm like, I want, I want to see him get his mojo back, man. I want to see him like really feeling himself and like that burning from the inside out with like confidence and, you know, feeling himself. But the cool thing about the show is is like this season was called like finding your joy. And the thing about finding joy is like, it's not joyful. (laughs) It's not joyful finding your joy. That shit's hard, man. It's bumpy. So I like it. I like playing the really bumpy road to joy and who knows how long it takes. Well, I mean, you chose the best profession to bumpy road to joy, the entertainment, to be an actor. 
So you grew up in Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in different parts of Canada. Yeah. You were on the lamb in Canada. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was hiding out. I was coiled. <laughs> I was lying in wait. Yeah. I grew up in Brampton, Ontario. And then I moved from there to Vancouver, like a suburb of Vancouver called Maple Ridge when I was 13. When did you come stateside? When or why? Why? Well, why? Yeah. That <laughs> is a good land, question. It's these the days. Like, opportunity, Robin. It, this is the place, man. I actually just got my citizenship like a month ago. Really? After, after so wait, so that's one for our team? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. You guys win. You got me. Canada suffered a terrible blow losing me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Um, I'll take you. <laughs> I, uh, I moved here when I was 20. I moved to LA. I had, you know, I'd done like Vancouver was like a hotbed of sci-fi television activity, X-Files and first wave and millennium and all everything right. shot Vancouver. And I cut my chops just doing like guest stars on all these shows. And then I, I did this show called breaker high with Ryan Gosling and I, where we were kids who went to school on a cruise ship, super Super cutting edge as well. Very inclusive. <laughs> the, the stupidest show of all time, but it was, it was fun. And it, it like sort of blew up. And then I, I hit my ceiling in Canada, you know, like I, that's, that was like the height of Canadian fame for me. I was like getting chased around malls and stuff. And then I kind of got burnt out. I didn't think I wanted to act anymore. I started looking for other things to do. No one wanted to hire me. I was overexposed in Canada. And, and then I got this audition for a pilot on the WB with Nikki Cox. And she was kind of hot shit at the time. And I came down, I flew down to LA and tested with her. And I didn't get it. But while I was there, we did a screen test together for her show called The Nikki Cox Show. I think it was just called Nikki. And then I got to make out with Nikki Cox for a minute in an audition. And then I didn't get the part. I found out like then and there, like I left and I got the phone call. I didn't get it. But back in the day, like if you were on a lot testing, sometimes this crazy thing would happen where they'd be like, oh, Tyler Levine is on the lot right now. Do you want him to come over and read for this other thing? And I went and read for this other thing called Dead Last that DeVincentes and Steve Pink and Patrick O'Neill wrote. They're the guys who wrote like High Fidelity and Gross Point Blank and part of the Actors Gang. And I went over and met with them in like this very casual sort of setting. And within like an hour, they were like, we want you to test for that. And I came back the next morning and tested for it and booked it. And they shot the pilot in Vancouver. And then the show got picked up. And moved to LA, which is never the way it happens. It's usually like they shoot the pilot, and then they right. go, hey, let's go shoot it cheaper in Canada. Yeah. They wanted to shoot it in LA. And I and that, so the, the show got picked up. They got me a visa and I moved to LA. And then I just never looked back. I just kept getting those guys signed me to a bunch of development deals and I kept developing shows with them at different networks. And I owe those guys a lot. And you've been consistently working. I was looking at your Wikipedia yeah, and it yeah. goes pages and pages. <laughs> and really you've done some really well. interesting, you know. You've done a lot of voiceover. Yeah, yeah. You're a major voice in Voltron. Vol- Voltron, yeah. I mean, listen to this tool I have. Listen yeah. to this. You are a tool. Uh, I mean, your voice is a tool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But uh, yeah, you can't have one without the other. It takes a real tool to have this voice. Yeah, and you um, are a real tool. <laughs> yeah, I did, I, did, I did Voltron. Voltron is a, again, a very realistic show, hyper-realistic show about these lions that are also robots that also joined together to form a bigger robot called Voltron, who is the defender of the galaxy and the universe, all based on true facts, true events. And uh, I happen to play the left leg of the giant robot named Hunk. He's the yellow lion. And as a cartoon from the 80s, like when I was a kid, it was one of the earliest examples I can think of, of like 
really bad anime making its way to the continental <laughs> United <laughs> States and Canada. <laughs> and it was like, this is what they would do. They would take like bits from all the different episodes and just mash it together and then dub it over. So it never made any sense. But man, as a kid, like lion robots in space, forget it. I, was I mean, there. that was it. So I love Voltron. And when I heard they were making Voltron a reboot on Netflix with DreamWorks, I was like, can I, can I get in there? And they were like, yeah, I, I've done some voice work, but not a ton. And they were like, yeah, you can read for Hunk. And he's like, he's like a 17-year-old boy. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can do that. And I went in there and read and I got it, but it was like I was put on probation. Netflix and DreamWorks was like, yeah, he, we're going to let him do three episodes and see if he can really like get younger. Can you sound younger? So I had to work on like how to get. So wait, so the name of the character is Hunk? Hunk, yeah. So what's your Hunk? Can you still do your Hunk voice? Can I hear a little bit of the young tool? So here's the <laughs> thing. I, I had a different voice. I've had vocal surgery since then. Uh, I, I used to sound like this when I talked all the time. So to, to like sound younger for me, I just had to like really kind of. You know, and a lot of it was like really just being super enthusiastic about everything. Uh -huh. like, oh, guys, come on. You know, and he was like, really like, I, I don't know. That's the best I can do right now. But it was like so cute. It's, I mean, I mean, that that's was really cute. <laughs> he was like, a, he's like the really enthusiastic. I love that he was a pilot, but he got motion sickness. So he was always like, guys, I'm going to throw up. Oh, God, guys, I'm going to throw up. And he'd like throw up into like the head of the lion multiple times. So. There was a lot of fun had, and I love that cast, which included Steven Yeun, now Academy Award nominee, you know, nominated actor Steven Yeun, and Bex Taylor Claus, and Josh Keaton, and Kimberly Brooks, and AJ Locascio, and Reese Darby, and all these people that was just like, and Jeremy Shada. It was a really great cast of people who were like way more experienced than me with voiceover. And I went in there and they just like schooled me. It was fun. How does one do voiceover? So are you there with the other characters? Are you doing your yeah. thing yourself? Common question. It's a mixture. Like when I did like a Monsters University for Pixar and I've done like, you know, Word Girl and I've done some like cartoons and it depends. If you're like schedule is a little bit difficult to work out. You know, oftentimes when we were doing Voltron, I was also shooting my show Deadbeat on Hulu and I, you know, I was off doing other things and whatever city I was in, they would just hook up a, a studio for me to go in and do my part. But when I was in LA, yeah, we were all, oftentimes we were all in a room together and that shit got crazy when there was like six of us in there goofing off and trying to make up. And it's a pretty funny show. It was mayhem. And our director, Andrea Romano, who's like a legend in the voiceover industry turned into like our babysitter. She would just like, guys, guys, you know, we were just like a bunch of unruly kids. So I think eventually they started not bringing us in together. <laughs> they were like, we better separating the class. Yeah. What about Monsters University? Tell me about that. Uh, that must have been fun. What a crazy experience. So I was just sitting in my living room one afternoon in Vancouver and I got a phone call from my agent and he was like, Hey, can you fly to San Francisco this afternoon? And I was like, I, yes, I'm available. Like, I don't, what do you mean? He was like, yeah, Pixar wants to fly you to Emeryville or to San Francisco and then drive you to Emeryville to the Pixar, their main headquarters. Was it cool? Studio. Was it cool over there? Oh my God. So yes, I got on a plane. They didn't tell me any details of what I was doing. I just knew that I was going to go and meet Corey Ray and Dan Scanlon. 
who directed and produced that. And then they went on to do that new one with Chris Pratt and uh, Tom Holland called Brothers, I think. Anyway, I was really excited. I didn't have any details, no lines, nothing to look at. They just said they really love you for the part. And so I got there and I went into the studio. It's like it's like going into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Really? If you like cartoons, if yeah. you like Pixar, it's just like everywhere you looked was like, oh, 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 oh my God, there's Woody. And there's, you know, and, and they have like, uh, like the craziest like gift shop. And they took me there right away. And they're like, take anything you want. What do you want? I'm like, really? oh, I'm here to do an audition. They're like, yeah, take whatever you want. And so I grabbed some stuff for my kids and, and they like walked me around and took me into a, like a recording booth and showed me like a little previs of the movie, like just like a very crude cut of some stuff. And they're like, okay, this is your character, Brock. And my character comes up and it's already voiced. It's this voice and the character going like, and it was really funny. And I was like, oh, and it sounded really familiar. I was like, who is that? Like, why don't you just use that guy? And they're like, that's you. We just took snippets from other performances no and, way. And, and pieced together some dialogue and just to put it in as a previs. And I was like, Oh, I guess I really better not fuck this up now. <laughs> like you've already used my voice. If I don't get the part, that's a little weird. Wow. Um, that is fascinating. Yeah. And so I went so into the audition with that great. in mind, like kind of being like, what? Oh man. So like I'm the prototype, but if I'm auditioning for it and if I blow it, that's really weird. Right. So your avatar would get the role, but not you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, man, that's a slippery slope. So I went into the booth and I started recording and Dan was like, so everything this guy says is like screamed. He's the most yelly, top of his lungs, enthusiastic character. And like I said, I had this, I had this different raspier voice at the time. And he was like, just go for it, man. And we started recording it and they're laughing and we're, and it's like an hour, two hours three hours, four hours, five hours. I'm there and we're just doing this. We're just going and going and going. And I start realizing like halfway through, I'm like, this is the gig. I'm doing it. And if they put it into the movie and it sucks, they'll just do this again with another actor. They'll bring a guy in and be like, we have a previs of your voice. And so I was like, oh, this is Pixar. So so genius, man. They're just like, this is the last stage in making these films. They don't, they've done everything else. They just want someone to come in and get it right. So we did it. And Dan walked me out. And by that point I was like, yeah, this was really fun, man. He was like, yeah, go rest your voice. And we're going to keep you here for one more night. We might need you again tomorrow. And I was like, okay. And then I got into a car. I was driving to the airport, to the hotel. And they called and they said, actually, you're good. You can go. We got everything we needed. And I called my agent the next day. I was like, so did I get the part? He was like, yeah, you did it. You're going to have a check probably in like, you know, a week. That's it. And they said, they might need you for one more session, which they did, which was like a couple weeks later. And I went in and did one more session. And then I was in Monsters University. <laughs> that was it. So your character in Monsters University yeah. was a preppy. What was that? A bird? Yeah. A he's like, he's like a, like a hippogriff. He's like a hawk, like lion. I can, but yeah. He had like horns. And it's kind of preppy too. I remember that. It was like a liger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah he, was, he was definitely, he was, he was like a jock. He had like a big letterman jacket on and, he was the vice president of the Greek council and Aubrey Plaza was the president and we did it together. We never met except for the never met. You just did your thing. And yeah, the whole bunch of people was like Charlie day and Sean um, from uh, will and grace, Sean. Oh, Sean Hayes, Hayes. Sean Hayes. Thank you. Sean Hayes. Who I met at the premiere and sat right by him. He was lovely. And yeah, it was a weird process, you know, like showed up with my now ex-wife, but wife at the time to the premiere. And we were just like, Let's go meet all these crazy, talented people that we love. 
Yeah, it was neat. And didn't you do something on Sunny in Philadelphia? It's always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. So That's a good are, one. Yeah. Those guys are my buddies. Like Glenn Howerton and I are really close. Glenn guest starred on a series of mine on ABC in like 2004 called That Was Then. He had not blown up yet, as they say. And we just stayed in touch. And anyway, I'd always been like, man, I'd love to be on Sunny. And he's just like, we just don't do guest stars. You know, like they have very, very rarely have guest stars. It was always about the gang. They have like some recurring smaller parts, but they were like trying to find something for me. And then finally, Glenn was like, we have this one dumb <laughs> small part, but like me and Charlie, and I know Charlie and, and Rob pretty well too. Well, not Charlie, but Rob. And they were like, do you want to just come and do like a fun day? And Todd Bierman was directing, who's a buddy of mine who directed a bunch of my show on Hulu, Deadbeat. And I just came on and just got to like be a bully to those guys on this one day. And it was really fun. There's nothing better than bully for a day. Yeah, <laughs> getting got, paid got, for it. Yeah, I got to get in Rob McElhinney's face and be like, what? You want to go, buddy? And uh, it was red. <laughs> Were you a fan of the show? Had you? Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Major. They bring quirky to a new level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they bring quirky. And, you know, it's funny for a show that was like, always towing the line, right? Like I'm sure there are episodes you go back now and be like, Ooh, I don't know if we can say that they've always gotten away with everything. And now they've become like a beacon for inclusivity. Their show has become this juggernaut of inclusivity, you know, with Rob's character being gay. There's like trans representation on the show. They leave no stone left unturned. They're really like, even though they're crass and crude, they're all about inclusivity. And I love that. I love that about that show. Now you're one of the regulars on this hit show. Yeah. How is episodic TV treating you? Do you like the schedule? I mean, yeah, yeah, it's good. You know, like I've done, this is like probably like my, I think it's my 14th TV series, which is kind of crazy to think about. And I have never done four seasons on a show. Deadbeat was the longest and that was three seasons. And those were really short seasons. They were 10, 13 and 13. So I've never done 22 episode long-term, like four seasons of 22 episodes of a show. And I thought, oh man, what a slog. That's going to kill me. It's like 10 months out of the year. I'm in New York. My family's in California, but like, it's such a big show, the cast, I mean, that like, I probably work four days an episode, sometimes five, sometimes more, but usually I'd say like half the days I have off. So I usually, they're kind of kind with the scheduling and I get to fly home when leaving on Friday to go see my kids for four days. And it's not bad. I hear like a lot of my friends, I won't name them here, but who have been on long standing, you know, running shows, especially procedurals are just like dying. They're just like, Oh my God, it's my golden handcuffs. You know, like make sure you keep yourself busy with other endeavors, you know, like you're going to be there for a long time. I'm not finding it to be that way. I find the show really, I did come from comedy and this is kind of like my foray into more dramatic work. I'm really just trying to leech all the experiential reward I can out of this show, you know? So I don't find it to be, unchallenging or boring by any means. I'm like, I'm loving it. That's right. I was reading and you had your roots in comedy. Mm -hmm. What's your opinion of our cancel culture here in our great country? Yeah. You know, cancel culture is definitely, you know, Canada is not (laughs) immune to cancel culture, but I, I have a lot of thoughts on cancel culture. I'm a 43 year old man, white cisgender (laughs) man. Okay. We've establishing. as you can see, as evidenced, the term itself, cancel culture, just kind of says it all, right? It's like, well, it just everything is expendable. I just don't agree. I think it is good that we have now started to be much more comfortable 
to say what we don't want to put up with anymore, what we shouldn't put up with anymore, what people are tired of being, you know, living with and feeling underrepresented or overrepresented or anything that I think that as a, in general, that people are feeling uncomfortable. And now we have a place and a platform to say what we don't like. I think that's good. Ricky Gervais posted this thing a couple of weeks ago and it said like, when someone says like, we can't joke about anything anymore. He's like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You can joke about whatever the fuck you want. Just know that people are going to tell you whether they don't like it or not. And then you, you do what you want with that information. You can either carry on or you can adjust. The choice is yours. And I was like, yeah, that's really the gist of it. Although on another level, people are just getting canceled, right? It's not just like certain you know, types yeah. of humor. People are getting their lives ruined by cancel culture. And I've had a couple of friends who have been sort of chewed up in the cancel culture melee. I've already said five to 10 things that will offend somebody. I'm sure I have. Yeah. Well, I mean, and also, you know, we talked about diversity and diverse casting. So your Mm -hmm. character is gay Mm -hmm. and you are not. Well, um, I'm not, I don't identify as gay, but I think, you know, I'm like, I'd I'd say I'm probably somewhere in the queer territory. So did you get any hassle? Well, no, I mean, so, and by the way, that's all fairly new. These are things I'm coming to terms with in my life post-divorce. At the time, I was really nervous about it. I was like, oh shit, you know, straight guy playing gay guy, gay for wait, how many wait, how many years ago is that? That was in what year? Is that? Four years ago. This is 2018, I think. And at okay. that point, were we looking at that? Yeah, I think the whole idea of like I'd heard the term gay for pay a few times, and I knew that, that just, really that was not a good thing. I also know that being accepted by the gay community is make or break, or the LGBTQ community is make or break for any representation on TV. And then you kind of have to like pass the guard. You know what I mean? You have to get let in. So I was very aware of doing it respectfully. And I didn't know when I, when I got offered the role, David Schulner didn't tell me anything about that until we were starting to shoot the pilot. He was like, what would you think about Iggy being gay? And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Actually. I'd love to do that. But then of course the rush of like, oh fuck, what if that offends people? And I wasn't sure if I should do it or anyway, I thought, the one thing I said to David, which we really agreed on right away, was like, okay, if we're doing this, it's not the thing. We're not hanging our hat on Iggy it's the backstory. Yeah, it's we're not part of your have... part of your fabric of who you are, yeah. I guess. It's just he's just a gay guy. He's a happily married, successful man who has four beautiful children and he's gay. You know, like it's a proud part of who he is, but let's not do like a Iggy struggling because he hasn't come out at work storyline or his like disapproving parents come in and, you know, gay shame him or, you know, like none of that. We just wanted it to be. And that's when David was like, well, we won't even, we're not even going to mention it until episode five. And it's going to be the most casual drop. And I remember it was coming. It was episode five. And my character just very casually says, Max says like, Hey, you want to do something? Tonight? I say, no, I've got dinner plans with Martin tonight. You know, I've got to go spend some time with the husband or whatever. No, I don't think I even said husband. We just said Martin was implied that I was hanging out with my significant other named Martin. And I was just waiting, just waiting for like the Twitter backlash or like people to be like, what? But it was immediately accepted and applauded for the way that we did it. And my uncle, who is a gay man, immediately called me and was like, he's gay. Yes. You know, like right on, man. And I felt this swell of pride. I was like, I have an opportunity. I always try to look for the opportunity. Like I have an opportunity to be an ally and represent in a way that is like, I think the way that is more honest and accurate to the way we see the world, you know? 
it's not like it is on TV. It's not these like fucking, you know, these like hammered over the head tropes. It's like, there's just gay people. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they're just It's hard. part of the fabric. Yes. It's interesting because that kind of leads back to, you know, we come full circle with obesity and the representation yeah. of obesity in pop culture. Yeah. Because it was, you know, it was the fat joke. Yeah. That was pervasive. Oh, man. Everywhere. 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 <laughs> and it still is, you know, like people are maybe a little more sensitive, but like we talked about, it's still kind of people are like, yeah, that one's fine. You can still do that. The amount of like fat jokes in comedy and the term fat, fat jokes, even the fact that that's like a genre, fat jokes is like, that's like a subgenre of comedy. We're watching like overweight comics tear themselves apart on stage because that was the only material they felt like they could. Yeah. Do. I mean, we actually produced a short film on comedy and yeah. obesity. And one of the uh, comedians that we profile said, I have to do the fat jokes because if I don't, the audience will be saying, well, does he know he is? Yeah. Because I want to just come out and say it because. Yeah. And the damage, the, the psychological toll, like comics, they're already like the saddest people. <laughs> like we know that they're already the people that are like, they're just up Troubled, there. sad. Yeah. yeah. Tearing themselves apart. Brilliant. And then you would watch these comics, like just literally demolish themselves on stage. It's that it's exactly that it's they're getting out in front of it. They're saying it before you are. And that's it. And I've done that my whole life. I call myself. So, and again, getting back to the storyline on New Amsterdam, are the writers on target? Are you feeding into the storyline? Are you commenting on it? Are you part of the development yeah. of it? Yeah. I mean, like I said, the initial sort of foray into it, even being like an actual storyline was because I couldn't not say something. I'm not taking all the credit. They had been baking something into the cake. And I don't even know to what degree, but I know that when I mentioned, like, can we really make something out of this? They were like, what do you got? You know? So when I gave them my actual story and they wrote it into the script, I definitely felt like I had some sort of involvement more than I've ever really had before as just an actor on a show. You know, they let me in. And yeah, some of the stuff and some of the, the disordered eating. And the rituals and the things I was able to comment on and take things from my life and things that I've done dieting or fat dieting or trying to lose weight that we've been able to put into the show. And then again, the language I've used to refer to myself and talk about myself in the past that I, I try not to do anymore. You know, the language I'm trying to undo from all the information I've been given my whole life is like that stuff's poignant and powerful stuff. So we've definitely put some of that in there. I've ad libbed quite a few things where it's just like, my old, really, really detrimental language that I used to talk about myself, not loving myself, not knowing my worth, you know, all that stuff. That's all come very organically as a collaboration. But how do you feel that it's your own personal story that you're now acting? It's weird. Like that reaction, the throwing the script down and like seeing it in black and white and being like, that's not, <laughs> that's not what I said. That's not my life. But then you realize like, well, it is. It's just you tell that story to yourself. You don't even tell it to yourself anymore. It just is you. You know what I mean? You're just like, it's just your life. You just accept what your life is until you see it represented in some medium, you know, like you see it written and then you're supposed to perform it and it takes a whole new shape. And it's been really, like I said, it's been really cathartic. I've actually done some of the most healing I think I've ever done in my life around body image 
just from the storyline on this show. I even went out and got tattoos after we shot that season. I went out and got tattoos that say all the good and all the bad on my biceps. And it was just about me finding unification within myself and accepting my shadows and my, my strengths, my weaknesses, everything. And like, really, I've been in a lot of therapy, but like this, this show has like really, again, I don't want to be too self-aggrandizing, but like this show has opened up doors for me internally that I just don't know that I would have been in the position to open up before this, you know, through like being able to act dramatically and find like the truth in something other than representing it comedically has been like a gift because comics do the same shit. It's just, it's more about misdirection. It's more about manipulating what you see. Whereas drama has allowed me to like lay some stuff flat out on the table and it just happens to be really personal stuff. So I've really found like just even acknowledging it or talking about it has like. Also, I mean, you are living what happened to you. So given that, you know, you had a pretty, it sounds like somewhat turbulent childhood of ups mm-hmm. and downs. Like, you know, and what would you say to your 12 year old self right now? Yeah, I have done this exercise quite a bit. Oh, well, I try. I'm no. trying, Tyler. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it's a very poignant. What I mean is by myself. I've tried to be very loving to my young me. You know, I would tell 12 year old me that I am worthy of love that I am lovable as is. I wish somehow I could impress upon 12-year-old me that like what the scale says that day does not erase or diminish my accomplishments. You know, like somehow I let my weight literally immediately take away all my accomplishments. Like everything else doesn't matter because I'm overweight. So I'd love to tell a 12-year-old me that that is just a line of absolute horseshit. Yeah, but just that I'm worthy of love and that I'm lovable as is, I think is a really important message to 12-year-old me. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody watch New Amsterdam, 10 o'clock on Tuesday nights. And that's 10 o'clock East Coast and I guess West Coast. And you can do all the travel math. Yeah, it's 10 o'clock everywhere, 9 Central. 9 Central. It's always like that that 9 Central growing up. It's like, who are those people? Yeah, who are these Centralites? I don't know who who they are. are. Who are after the comma, but thank you, Tyler. And I'm so glad to see you and yeah, you too. Look forward to uh, getting together in the human. Uh, yes. In person would be great. And thank you so much for having me on Robin. Tyler. Thank you so much. That was a lot. And thank you so much for sharing everyone. Please make sure to come back next time when we welcome from Fox's the resident author, TV writer, and retired surgeon, Dr. Anthony Chinqui, and one of the stars of The Resident, actor Manish Dayal. See everyone then. You've been listening to On the Edge, a podcast series from The Creative Coalition, hosted by Creative Coalition CEO Robin Bronk. For more information on how you can protect funding for the arts and harness the power of the arts to promote social good, visit us at thecreativecoalition.org.